וגם אני פתאום רואה את Hello and welcome to Kolot. This is your host, Rabbi Hillel Kappenstein, director of the Columbus Community Kolel. And it is an honor and privilege to welcome you to our next episode of Kolot featuring Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson. I'm sure you've heard of Rabbi Y.Y. before and you may have even seen him before if you were at our 2018 Columbus United annual Siem HaTorah where he spoke so beautifully. And in this episode... We're going to talk about some incredible teachings that he has from his father, who was a journalist and editor of a, of a great Jewish publication. And we're going to also discuss his shlichus, diversity, some really great stuff. And I got to tell you, when you know, I was sitting down to prepare for the interview with Rabbi YY, I, I wrote a list of like 10 things I want to cover. And halfway through the list, During the interview, I realized, uh-oh, we're over an hour already. So we didn't even get through half the list, let alone everything we wanted to do. So we're probably going to have to bring him back for a take two. But this was some interview, and uh, I think you guys will enjoy it very, very much. Thank you to everyone who tuned in to our last episode with Rabbi Aaron Cutler. He said such incredible teachings from his parents, uh, Rip Schneer Cutler, uh, his mother, his grandfather, The Vision. It was really something special that we had someone who's done so much for the Jewish people that he came to talk on our show. Um, I think Rabbi Cutler had the most downloads, the most listens. Uh, thankfully, we're in five countries with hundreds of listeners, so it's really exciting that we're hitting these numbers, and thank you to all of you who are helping make that happen. Uh, next week, or the next few weeks, we have some great guests coming up. We have David Heller from Cleveland uh, NRP Group. We have... Uh, Columbus native Johnny Diamond, Jason Greenblatt, and Howard Friedman. So past president of APAC, chief architect of the Abraham Accords, um, big APAC supporter, and Israel advocates are all coming on this show in the next few episodes and more to come following that. So make sure to stay tuned. Um, and back to this week, you know, Rabbi YY is just someone who really so many different people from all walks of life have fell in love with his teachings, his warmth, his inspiration, whether you're Hasidic, uh, Ashkenazic or Sephardic, Litvish, it doesn't matter. So many people are just in love with Rabbi YY and his teachings. Um, So our show, Kolot of Voices, where so many different voices come to Life on just one platform, it's really befitting that we have Rabbi YY join us. So without further ado, let me tell you about our guest. America's premier Jewish scholars in Torah and Jewish mysticism, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak Jacobson is one of the most sought-after speakers in the Jewish world today, lecturing to Jewish and non-Jewish audiences on six continents and in 40 states, and serving as teacher and mentor to thousands across the globe. He is considered to be one of the most successful, passionate, and mesmerizing communicators of Judaism today, 
calling his ideas from the entire spectrum of Jewish thought and making them relevant to contemporary audiences. Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson was the first rabbi ever to be invited to the Pentagon to deliver the religious keynote to the U.S. military chief of chaplains and to the National Security Agency. At the conference, he was hailed the Jewish Billy Graham. Rabbi Jacobson founded and serves as dean of the yeshiva.net, teaching via the web one of the largest Torah classes in the world today, with thousands of students globally. Formerly, he served as editor-in-chief of the largest Yiddish-English newspaper existing today, the Algemeiner Journal, and as spiritual leader of Congregation Beishmuel in New York. And I'm going to add on just uh, my own. Um, I was introduced to Rabbi Jacobson about five years ago when uh, a good friend, Mayor Perlmutter, give him a shout out here, introduced me to Rabbi Jacobson, said, you got to start listening. And then we were very privileged to bring Rabbi Jacobson here. And then uh, we went to, I dropped you off by mayor's house. He had like a three hour schmooze. Um, and then you came here. So you've also been, besides this entire bio, you've been a Rebbe to me and to some friends and so many people. So welcome to Kolot. This is uh, a real honor and schuss. Thank you for, uh, for joining our show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me and for the privilege and opportunity and invitation. Okay. So today we have very fond mom. I have very fond memories of our evening together in the Kailo. That's right. That's right. Our, our second annual CMA tour in 2018. Sure. Right. Uh, so you, today you currently serve as Dean of the Yeshiva.net and live in Muncie, New York. Uh, I understand though you grew up in Crown Heights. So if you could take us through, walk us through your journey to Muncie and if you could also share with us what you believe your shlichus, your mission is today. Wonderful, wonderful question. Thank you so much. So both of my parents were born in the Soviet Union in the 1930s when Stalin's tyranny has uh, reached its uh, tragic zenith and Jews, especially religious Jews, especially Hasidic Jews were persecuted in the most heinous of ways, but their families survived not without arrest and torture, and they ultimately escaped the Soviet Union after the Second World War on false papers. And after many years of traveling through the DP camps, they ultimately made it here to the United States of America. And my father, of blessed memory, most of his life worked as a journalist. He was a journalist, a correspondent for Israel's largest daily, a secular newspaper, Yediyot Achronot. He was the correspondent in the UN and in New York. He worked for Newsweek and for Herald Tribune and Day Morning Journal, many newspapers. Then he made his own Yiddish newspaper. And they settled in Brooklyn, in the Crownite section of Brooklyn, which at that time in the 1950s was flooded with hundreds of thousands of Jews until a mass migration in the 1960s and the early 1970s to other communities and other neighborhoods, as happened with other neighborhoods uh, across America. So they grew up in the Cronite section of Brooklyn, and that's where I was born in 1972. That's where I was raised. That's where I was educated. I had the privilege of growing up at the feet of the late Lubavitcher Rebbe of blessed memory. And um, I uh, I became a writer. I became a teacher. I taught in yeshiva for many years, Rosh Yeshiva, Magachir, a, a local yeshiva over there. And then after some years of living there, I was a rabbi of a shul there. My wife and I felt that the opportunities in Muncie in terms of uh, reaching 
larger audiences would be more conducive for my work. So a number of years ago, we relocated here, and it's proven, Baruch Hashem, very successful. That's the brief, the skinny <laughs> the version. Brief version. <laughs> no, that's beautiful. Um, so we just actually had it on um, uh, Sivan Rahav Meir last week, and we're going to yeah. be releasing that. Episode. Sivan Rahav Meir is, is, a, is a writer, a very popular writer, an extraordinary human being. She actually visited months here before Corona, and we had a chance to meet up. So my father, actually, he worked with uh, Eli Wiesel, Eli Wiesel was a journalist for many, many years. That actually was his main career before he became a writer and a world-renowned uh, speaker and uh, you know, sort of be the voice of the Holocaust uh, survivors. But for many years, he worked with my father together in journalism. And of journalism in the 60s, he gave his job to my father as a correspondent of the Adiyata, not in the United Nations. Wow. So it was a very interesting hall because, uh, you know, then it's not like today. Today, newspapers don't have the power or the prominence or the appeal they had then. You know, then there weren't many Jewish newspapers, and this is pre-internet, pre-computers. So the newspaper was your ticket, your vista to the world. There was nothing else. The newspaper really had such power, and uh, both in positive and the negative. So when I grew up in the 1970s, you know, <laughs> My father just walking into shul on Friday night, not a simple experience. Everybody, everybody had what to say. Today, everybody has their own newspaper. You pick up your phone, you're the editor of your newspaper. You send out a clip and that editorial, whether it's, uh, whether it's foolish or logical, but it's a whole, it's a whole different world today. Yeah. It's very interesting. Uh-huh. Anyone could post on their WhatsApp status. Everybody or any- could post up. Everybody is a commentator. Everybody is a witness. Everybody is a witness. Right. Right, Today, right. the real qual- the real, uh, the real task of a newspaper is not to figure out what to write; it's to figure out what not to write. Mm-hmm. How to how to remove the static and and zoom in on on the real important uh, items. It's a very sure. different task. <laughs> sure, beautiful. No, that's that's great. So you know, your father um, was a very influential person in your life and in in, in your life, um, and, but really in everyone's life with his um, with his paper. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what it was like growing up in his home on a personal level and maybe some of the lessons you've learned with him that stick with you today? Yeah, I, I, I would mention two things that right away come to mind. First of all, it was a very diverse home, very open-minded, if you wish. All types of characters visited. Um, remember that the Yiddishist world, this is an unknown world today for most young Jews. The Yiddishist world was a very powerful world. It was a world that was based on Yiddish culture and Yiddish language, not on Jewish religion. So many of the Yiddish writers were not religious Jews. Today, it's unheard of because the Yiddish language outside of Hasidic groups has died in other groups. But in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, and even 70s, people don't realize there was an organization called the Arbitering Workmen's Circle, which was founded by the Bundistan the socialist left-winger Yiddishisten who were anti-religious. And they had 600 Jewish schools for children. 600. (laughs) Who even knows about today? I think there's two or three left. In the early 1950s, it seemed like somebody wrote an article in the New York York magazine. Jewish religion is about to die. Yiddish culture is going to live. Yiddish theater, Yiddish press, Yiddish literature, the novels of Shalom Aleichem, 
Most people don't even know Shalom Aleichem is. They think it's just a greeting. But the Yiddish novels of Shalom Aleichem, of parrots, of men, Shalom Ash, all these, they had such, such power because the whole immigrant generation, they read Yiddish. The forward, the daily farvets, the Yiddish farvets, I believe had a quarter of a million readers, a quarter of a million readers. And remember, all, all Jews who spoke Yiddish, this was their entry into, into the new world. But their children already went to public schools. Why should they buy a Yiddish newspaper when they could read an English newspaper? And ultimately, much of that generation assimilated, as we know. So my father worked for these Yiddish newspapers. So he had these connections with all these interesting personalities. They spoke perfect Yiddish. Many of them were atheists and heretics of very extreme magnitude, but they had a very good Jewish education. So it was a paradox very hard to find today because nothing was left of their children. This was the mistake they made. They thought that Jewish culture enough, Jewish culture alone, you know, Begel and Lachs and theater and literature will be bequeathed to the next generation. And they let go of Yiddishkeit, of Shabbos, of Torah, of Mitzvahs. They didn't understand what is going to happen. And it was really a tragedy. Today, who speaks Yiddish? The Hasidim, who kept up the Yiddish language. But in any case, so it was a very, very interesting home. Two things I really learned from my father, I think, that I always sought, and it was always, it was inspiring for me, was his ability not to judge people. He was a seasoned journalist, sharp mind. Uh, he would interview people. He knew how to listen without judging, without dismissing, really allowing us and teaching us how we have to embrace the diversity of God's world, realize that the Jewish people are a rainbow. And when you listen and you tune in, you'll always find gems of inspiration and valueless nuggets. In every person's soul, there's a unique light. And he really personified that. He had strong opinions and strong convictions. But on the pages of his newspaper, he really allowed such a spectrum of voices and opinions from the far right to the far left. And even though he had such strong convictions, say, about Israel, about Jewish survival, Jewish continuity, he never allowed it to become personal. He taught me how to disagree without becoming disagreeable. It was never personal. There was no vendetta. There was no like, you disagree with me, so therefore I hate you. I can't trust you. It was always a connection to let's talk about the truth and what we really want for ourselves, for our children, for our people, for our homeland. The other thing I really learned from my father was the courage to stand up and speak out in situations that are unpopular, even when you may get criticized. He once told me a fabulous insight that he heard from the Lubavitcher Rebbe, that when Moshe, Moses, sees an Egyptian beating up a Jew, Torah says that he turned here and he turned there and he saw there was no man, and he struck down the Egyptian and he saved the Jew. And the question, of course, is there were people because they informed upon him to the Pharaoh. So there were people who witnessed what Moses did to this Egyptian tyrant. And one of the answers is, what it means is he turned here and he turned there and he saw there was no man. There was nobody who was going to take on the murderer. There's nobody who's going to stand up for truth, for life, for an innocent, vulnerable Jew who's being bitten there. There was no ish. There was no person who's going to take responsibility. There were people who looked, but they were all victims and they all just went with the tide because they were slaves. What are they supposed to do? And Moses had to make a decision at that moment. Will he say, nobody really can do anything. Who do I think I am? You know, I'll write a check or say a prayer. 
What made him unique was, he said, there's no ish, you become the man. And that made Moses Moses. And I saw from my father, it was very inspiring for me. Sometimes he would write editorials and write articles and people were upset talking about things and cases and situations and people that it would have been much easier and also financially more profitable not to trigger these sensitive components. But I really felt from him, he, he told me once, he said, I grew up in communist Russia. The common denominator in all of communist Russia was you could not speak the truth. And if you spoke the truth, you paid with your li- you could pay with your life. And many people did pay with my life. He says, therefore, I made a commitment <laughs> that I'm going to try to do whatever I can not to allow truth to be buried. This was something that was very meaningful for me growing up. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to go off script right now for a quick second um, because you talked. <laughs> those about- are the best. Those are the best. You know what <laughs> they say, Reb Hillel? They say two, two people fail. Those who don't have a plan and those who stick to the plan. <laughs> That's right. I Since love you that. run a Jewish organization, you know that. You have to have a plan. But you can't stick to the plan. Oh, that's right. Oh, yeah. Especially with budgets. Especially <laughs> with budgets. <laughs> Especially you have to always be flexible to tune into the calling of the moment. You know, in, in, in Talmud, we have the expression, mitzvah saseh shahazman grama. You know, you have to know right. what's the calling of the moment. <laughs> exactly. Okay. So, and you mentioned diversity. And this, you know, we're, this show is Kolot, where we have voices. And that's really the whole theme is to have that diversity. And one of the... Um, one of the big challenges of diversity, and I, and I you know I ask forgiveness for all those who may not appreciate this, is that it seems like today diversity has been defined as you have to be different, accept it, embrace it, even if it's contrary to a value or a teaching of you. And you know we, we talk about the rainbow that, that you mentioned today. You mentioned that. Forgive me for saying, but you think the month of I June right it. away. So, and 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 the flip side is. If you look in the Torah, the one time the Jewish people were considered unified at an unprecedented level was by Har Sinai 3,333 years ago. And the Torah refers to us as singular. And I would like to believe it's not singular because we all felt and thought the same. is rather because we rallied around a single shared value. So my question is, how do we embrace diversity, encourage colorful people and colorful ideas, but then also at the same time, not run the risk of making people embrace things that are contrary to their upbringing. It's listen, it's, it's, this is one of the, perhaps one of the fundamental questions of the age. And I would say, I once heard from the late Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, the former chief rabbi of Great Britain who passed away last year. He was talking about a conversation he had with Paul Johnson, Paul Johnson is a Christian, non-Jewish historian, but historian of Jewish history. He wrote a wonderful book uh, called The History of the Jews. And Rabbi Sachs said that he heard from uh, Professor Johnson. He said one of the things that impressed him about the Jewish people was, he says, one of the hardest things for humanity throughout thousands of years was to balance the power of individuality versus the power of the state, the country, the community. That negotiating balance is one of the most complicated things. Who wins? Is it the state that prevails or the individual that prevails? And he says Judaism, more than any other faith in the world that he knows, touched him so deeply because as humanly possible or as divinely possible, they created that very 
powerful and sensitive balance of understanding the appreciation and the respect we need for community, for cohesion, for unity, to be able to share a story, to be able to have some values that unite us, to be able to have some absolute moral boundaries of right versus wrong so that we can create a shared narrative and build a world that is safe and good for all of us. On the other hand, cherishing the unique contribution of individuality. I once said that God tells Abraham, your children are going to be like the sand of the sea and like the stars of heaven. Why the two metaphors, besides the fact there are more stars than grains of sand? The answer is because sand, one grain of sand is valueless. The power of a beach is you bring together many grains and you have a beautiful beach. With stars, it's the other way around. Each star is individualistic. When stars collide, they destroy each other. So God tells Abraham, I want your children to be like the sand of the sea, to understand the power of family, of community, of unity, of cohesion. You're one people. You're part of a story. But also be like the stars of the heaven. Recognize the indispensable, unique contribution of every soul. Each of us is a note, an individual note in a cosmic symphony. So we comprise together a symphony like an organism that's comprised of many, many cells, 70 trillion cells. But each one has an individual story to tell. And I think what the Torah really offers us is that very delicate synthesis, where on one hand, if there's no values and no morality and absolutely no system, so then there is disintegration, where individuality is at the expense of everything. We undermine not only other people, we also undermine ourselves because we have no compass, we have no focus, we have no direction. We question everything, including our own existence very often. So Torah gave the Jewish people a foundation, a story, that we are all part of, a mission statement that every single one of us is connected to. On the other hand, we're talking about infinity. Hashem, God, is infinite. So within infinity, everybody ought to find their unique light that they manifest through their presence in the world. And practically speaking, I think what it means, the way I understand it is, you know, when you meet somebody who has very, very different opinions than you, very different, and sometimes completely contradictory to what you believe. Don't go into a defensive mode and a dismissive mode where either I have to, what do we call it, fight or flight or freeze. You don't have to do that. You can appreciate the person even if you don't agree with their opinions. You can listen. You can absorb You can respect the human being. You can understand where they're coming from. And instead of judging them, realizing that we should never judge anybody until we don't reach their space, as the ethics of the fathers say, until I have not grown up in your home, dealt with your traumas, been given your challenges, been given your psyche, your brain. How can I judge you? I don't wear your shoes. I haven't walked down your road. So we have to have that respect and sensitivity, not to judge people and dismiss them. This doesn't mean I agree with you, but it means I tune in to where you are and I can even try to understand where you're coming from. And then what happens is we can have dialogue, we can have conversation, and we could still learn to love and trust each other, even if there are fundamental disagreements. And then ultimately, what that happens then is we learn that even if we can't always uh, agree with everything, we could still be here for each other, support each other, and cherish each other. Wow. Okay, that's beautiful. Um, I think Rav Schwab used to say that uh, 
The Jewish people are this, it's this orchestra. It's the symphony of many instruments. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, the fact is, you know, Jews do disagree about stuff. Some disagreements are part of the richness of Judaism. There's not a single page in the Talmud that doesn't have many disagreements between the greatest of the sages. Abaya argues with Rava, and Rav argues with Shmuel, and Rabbi Yosef argues with Rabbi Nachman, and Rabbi Akiva argues with Rabbi Yosef, and Rabbi Yehuda, and Rabbi Shimon, and Hillel argues with Shammai, Hillel, the school of Hillel argues the school of Shammai, and that really constitutes the richness we paskin like Hillel. The just, just, I, I just want to say we paskin like Hillel. Just, just <laughs> Very <want to>. good. <laughs> and, and so many perspectives, but it's so interesting. If you study Mishnah and Talmud, you'll see that the school of Hillel always is mentioned as the second opinion. The first opinion is always of Shammai. Now, who wrote the Mishnah? A descendant of Hillel, a skin of Hillel, Rabbi Judah the Prince. He came from Hillel. Why does he always put the opinion of the school of Shammai before the opinion of his own grandfather? That seems disrespectful. The answer to that is because the editor of the Mishnah understood you can only crystallize your own opinion if you could listen to the opinion of your opponent. Because if I don't, then I could just become claustrophobic and I retreat into my isolated view. I don't even allow myself to be challenged by another perspective. So Hillel always understood, listen to what Shammai is saying. The school of Hillel encouraged the school of Shammai to speak first so they can then consider it, reflect on it, debate it. And ask themselves, is my opinion coming from a deep, authentic conviction and view of life? Or maybe it's coming from the fact that I never heard anything else. Maybe there's a little indoctrination. That's the power of diversity that is not just healthy. It's invigorating. It makes everybody richer. So in that sense, disagreements become a very powerful catalyst for growth and for deeper unity and communication. Obviously, there are some views that are not included in the Mishnah because they're completely contrary to the very fabric of Torah and halacha. That's a clear boundary that Judaism always understood. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that is, that, that's beautiful. Um, I love that. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting because w- w- when we talk about this um, concept of Mishnah, and we say that Mishnah has the same letters as Neshama. So everyone uses, uses that to say that, you know, for Shloshim and Yartzai, learn Mishnah. And by the way, anyone listening, come to the Kolo. We'll learn Mishnah with you. We're not saying not to. But I, I wonder if it's, you know, on top of, in addition to that, it's because Mishnah really embodies the Neshama, the Jewish spirit of, of bringing a collected, um, you know, thought process and being Mechabed, honoring the other one. That's not negating yours, but it's elevating everyone in the process. Maybe that's also part of Mishnah, the neshama. The neshama of the Mishnah is that unity in, in, in Torah learning together. That's beautiful. And the last Mishnah from the 60 tractates of Mishnah, the last Mishnah of tractate Uktsin, ends off with the words that God has not found a greater container for blessings than peace. Mm-hmm. And he concludes with the verse, God May give, should give confidence to his nation and bless them with peace. Why is that the culmination of the entire Mishnah? Because the whole Mishnah is filled with arguments, <laughs> disputes, debates. From the first Mishnah, Tractate Brachas, Mishnah 1, there's already a three-way debate. When you read Shema at night, we can't agree on that. When, till, what's the deadline that you're allowed to read Shema, which is the Jewish anthem, the Jewish motto in the evening? There's three opinions. 
That's already the first Mishnah. There's only one chapter in Mishnah that's in Tractate Zvachim, one chapter, chapter seven, that has no arguments. And we got so excited about that chapter that we put it into our morning prayers, Ezel Mekaimon, because as the Beis Yosef says, the sages were so excited that there's finally one chapter that Jews agree on. You know, they say the old joke in the kosher restaurant, the waiter going from table to table and asking, is anything all right? So when we finally, when we finally find one chapter in Mishnah, Tractate Zvachim, where there's no argument, so we put it into our daily service. So the last Mishnah speaks about peace to tell us that all the arguments and debates don't undermine peace. On the contrary, real shalom, real peace is about integration of all of our forces. And I think the best metaphor for that in our life is marriage. You know, what, what's a great marriage that you never disagree with your husband? God forbid. If you're a Jewish wife, you should never disagree with your husband. How Jewish can you be? You never disagree with your spouse. Of course we disagree. We have different personalities. We have different vibes. We have different idiosyncrasies. We have different traumas. Of course we disagree with each other. However, however, it's the famous commentary of the Nitziv, Rabbi Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin. He was the rabbi and Rosh Hashiva of Valoj in Lithuania in the 19th century. He says, the Torah says that I'm going to create a help for Adam, Ezer Kenegdo which is against him. He says, sometimes the greatest help you get is when somebody disagrees with you. A couple doesn't have to agree with each other. They have to trust each other. We can disagree, but we have to trust each other. I have to know that you got my back a thousand percent. And you have to know that I got your back a thousand percent. We have to be able to have that loyalty, that dedication, that trust each other. And then disagreements actually become Great opportunities for expanding your horizon. So that's why the last Mishnah speaks about speaks about shalom, speaks about peace. But for this, you need a broader consciousness and become aware of when you're being triggered by your own insecurities. Many of our conflicts are simply triggers of our own inner insecurities. Confident people don't have to dismiss and delegitimize people with other opinions, even if there are disagreements. Right. They're, they're, they're not threatened. It's, I'm not threatened. I'm not threatened. You, you, right. you know your game. Your confidence in your game. You don't see it. Right. And, and, and the debate itself becomes a tool for expanding your horizons and even enriching and crystallizing your own position. And I would say that in that sense, the culture of the Talmud saved the Jewish people because we are a very opinionated people. Sure. And the Talmud really teaches us how to disagree. You know, there were sages that debated each other nonstop, but they were best friends. They married into each other's families. The Mishnah says in Erevin that the school of Shammai and Hillel disagreed about fundamental questions of Jewish law, but they married each other's children and they ate at each other's homes and they loved each other. Because they were not looking to be right. They were looking for the truth. That's another very fundamental difference. When I'm arguing with you, am I seeking victory or am I seeking truth? If I'm seeking victory, then we'll both lose at the end. If I win, you lose. And if you win, I lose. But if we're both looking for truth, then even if I'm defeated, I also won. Because the only defeat that's not a defeat is when you're defeated by truth. And when you have that conviction that there is truth and you're looking for it, then everything changes. Okay, so this sounds nice, um, and you, you know, and you know, I would love for this to be, um, you know, played in every household. Uh, but realistically speaking, machlokas, um, you know, 
is something, you know, arguments and debates and fighting is, is something that we're not uh, unfamiliar with, unfortunately. So, you know, my, my question is, it's not just, you know, cause it doesn't just apply to neighbors or, you know, why did this guy get an Ali on that, that person get whatever it, it goes much further. Cause sometimes, unfortunately, even be with leaders of our community at the same time, we talk about Shalom and, you know, the, we say in davening, that, that they're supposed to increase peace in the world. <laughs> so at the same time, how do we have this, you know, interesting idea of machlokas and then at the same time, they're supposed to be increasing peace. Okay. So first of all, I'm going to tell you a bad joke that I heard from the late chancellor of Yeshiva University, Rabbi Dr. Norman Lamb who passed away also last year, two years ago. And he said, somebody once asked him if there's any humor in davening, if there's anything humorous in the prayers. He said, absolutely. We end our prayers with something very humorous. When we say, <laughs> that Torah scholars increase peace in the world. I call it a bad joke because it's really a tragic joke. And that's what you're bringing up. And that is, the truth is that somebody who embodies Torah by definition is a walking pillar of peace and love. Peace and love are not words invented by Shlomo Kalbach and Kalbach songs and melodies. The Rambam, the greatest authority of Jewish law and Jewish history, the Rambam who lived in the 12th century, Maimonides, writes at the end of the laws of Hanukkah, I quote, the entire Torah was given for one purpose, lasos shalom ba'olam, to bring peace to the world, to the inner world and to the outer world. And it's quoting actually a Sifri, which means it comes from the Talmud. And it's relevant in Jewish law because the question is, if I have one candle, I'm poor. I only have one candle and I can use it Friday afternoon to light my Hanukkah candle or to light my Shabbat candle. And Maimonides quotes the great sage Rava in Talmud, Shraktet Shabbos, you light your Shabbos candle and not your Hanukkah candle. But why? Shalom bias. The answer is because the Hanukkah candle represents the victory, the military victory on the battlefield, which saved the Jewish people and Judaism. But there's something more important, and that is peace in the home. And the Shabbos candles doesn't represent grand military Hashmanai victories, but it represents the fact that Friday night by the meal, the sages wanted there should be luminescence and brightness so there would be more peace in the home more love, more camaraderie, because when you see your wife, you see your husband, you see your children at the meal. Remember, this is before Thomas Edison's. There's no light bulb. So at night, Friday night at the meal, it was pitch dark. It was really pitch dark. So the candles brought more peace and harmony and love and a good vibe in the house. That, in Judaism, precedes the celebration of our greatest military victory, which we're genuinely grateful for. Because when there's no peace in the home, in a family, in a community, we ultimately are all damaged. So the true vision of Torah is, you always have to ask yourself, if a mitzvah is bringing more peace into my home, into my brain, into my family, into my community, then it's Torah. If Torah is causing strife, conflict, negativity, anxiety, animosity, politics, Maimonides will tell you, go revisit and ask yourself, is this real Torah? Is this the real Torah? In Torah, there are disagreements, but not hatred, not negativity. I told you, the whole Talmud is filled with debates and disputes. Maimonides, every page of Maimonides, many commentators argue with him. But the the arguments are because every person has a unique light of God that they bring into the world. Individuality is not a curse. 
It's a gift. Just like in a beautiful marriage, it's the husband and the wife who are different people who create that incredible institution we call marriage, we call family. They don't always agree, but there's shalom, this peace. And I think we, the Jewish people, it's one of our greatest challenges, and it's one of our greatest crises. And if you want to look through Jewish history, you will see that every major destruction was preceded by internal divisiveness. We turned against each other. Our first exile to Egypt happened because Joseph and his brothers, the Bible says in Genesis, they could not speak peacefully with each other. When there's a breakdown in communication, when I can't look in you in your eyes, when you can't look at me, when we can't discuss arguments, when we can't sit together at a table, when there's a breakdown of communication, there's a breakdown of, there's a breakdown in a family. And when you see families, people stop talking to each other. I always tell people, argue, but don't stop talking to each other. And don't always assume that the other person is heinous and is trying to destroy you. They may have a different perspective. They may also have limitations. They may have limited tools. Yes, they may have limited, they may need help. So let's employ compassion rather than judgmentalism and hatred. What often happens is, and I hate to say this, but sometimes I see communities fighting, rabbis fighting, and I want to tell them both, you're not fighting. Your traumas are fighting with each other. If you would be confident, if you would work on yourself, if you would be aware of your triggers, if you would see in what a petty state you're in, you're operating from such a narrow, traumatized, petty state. If you could just see your own expansiveness, if you could believe that you're not a broken person and this person is not going to destroy you, you're bigger, you're stronger. What do we used to say in school? My tati is bigger than your, is stronger than your tati. If we can recognize our own inner wholeness, we don't have to fight. You don't need to stoop down to that level. There should be no person in the world that you're not on speaking terms with. I'm not talking about a situation where we're dealing with an active abuser or somebody who's endangering in life and you need to have very strong boundaries. I'm not talking about those extreme cases, but I'm talking about brothers who don't talk, sisters who don't talk, parents and children who don't talk. We could disagree, but we should never allow ourselves under ordinary circumstances to become people that we have to cross the street. When somebody is walking towards us because I can't look you in the eyes and I can't say good Shabbos. It's, 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 it's in Yiddish, the best word, we're bigger than it. We're larger than this. You're, you're a reflection of God. Every soul is a reflection of God. Does God also have to cross the street when he sees somebody? Why do you have to cross the street? Even if you have an issue, even, even if there's a disagreement, one of the most poignant, poignant observations was made by the third Lubavitcher Rebbe, the Tzermach Tzedek, he lived in the 18th and 19th century. And he was one of the great rabbinic figures of Russia. He's known as the Tzermach Tzedek, Rebbe Nachemendel of Lubavitcher, grandson of the Balatanya. And he writes in one of his discourses. I saw it many years ago. And I have to say, my breath was taken away for a few seconds. He said, why is it that children don't keep grudges? while adults do harbor grudges. You know, every child tells you once in a while, Tati, I don't like you. You know, you're not my friend anymore. I'm not giving you a piece of the birthday cake. But 10 minutes later, they're your best friend, especially if you give them a little ice cream. With adults, we harbor grudges. We remember everything that happened. And if I tell you I'm not going to speak to you, five years later, I'm still not on speaking terms with you. 10 years later, I won't invite you to my daughter's wedding. 
Why? Aren't adults supposed to be more mature than children? And his answer was, children choose being happy over being right. Adults choose being right over being happy. For children, the most important thing is I want to be happy. And relationships breed happiness and contentment. And for us adults, sometimes our insecurities or egos become so inflated that I would rather be miserable, but I'm going to be right. I tell a guy, why don't you just call your brother-in-law and say, I'm sorry. What do you have to fight for 20 years? He tells me, if I call him, he's going to think that he was right. So we would rather be miserable. We would rather be miserable, but I'm going to be right. Children are smarter than that. When I sometimes see a father alienating children or children alienating parents because of a disagreement, a monetary disagreement, an ideological disagreement, a spiritual disagreement, an emotional source of conflict. It is so painful because we don't realize the damage that we create for generations between children and their cousins and the grandchildren. Rifts in families and communities are something that our generation cannot afford. We have been through so much over thousands of years and we have seen where family conflict has led us time and time again. The destruction of the first temple was caused because, again, an internal conflict in the Jewish world. The destruction of the second temple, once again, the Talmud says so clearly. And sometimes what our enemies can do to us, we sadly do to ourselves. Wow. Okay, so I'm not done yet with this topic. <laughs> one, of, one of the things that I think makes this so hard <laughs> Um, and, and really complicated is because as society goes, you know, a little further south and you compound that with the digital age where everything that is going down south is also going public and we have to protect and we have to, you know, make sure that we don't follow that. And sometimes we go to the opposite extreme, not that the extreme was the mitzvah, but at least it'll hopefully prevent us from going, you know, downhill. And then at the same time, we hold on to those extremes so much like it is the mitzvah, we have a hard time letting go when it's in conflict. So should we not be doing this to begin with, or do we have to be more mindful when we go further down, to go right. f- further away, that it's knowing what is the halacha and what's the cushion to the halacha, or hashkafa, or whatever it is? Right, beautiful question. So I think there's an important distinction to be made. Two, two points I want to make. Point number one is, If you look through Jewish history, you will see that even if intuitively we would think the more from, the more religious, the more stringent, the more God-fearing, the more judgmental you should be. Because the less you can tolerate anything that doesn't fit into God's will the way you understand it. But take a look at personalities, and I'm going to mention a few names, like the Baal Shem Tov, Reb Levi Yitzchak of Bardichev, Reb Zusha of Anapoli, the Balatanya, Reb Melech of Lezhensk. I'm mentioning just a few of the great luminaries of the early Hasidic world of the 18th century. They were well known today, until today, with their piety, their, their fear of God, their love of God, and their commitment to Judaism to the point of absolute self-sacrifice. And yet, you will find that these individuals were the least judgmental. They somehow had space in their heart for every type of Jew, and they really loved every Jew. But why? If you're so careful and you're so connected to God, you should be the most zealous against embracing everybody. 
But Reb Hillel, it's the exact opposite. And I'll tell you why. To really be connected to Judaism means I don't worship religion. I don't worship ritual. I don't worship my comfort zone. I don't worship my holier-than-thou status. I worship God who's undefined. God who has no image. I have a real relationship with the infinite, with the transcendent. And you know what that accomplishes? That every person I meet, I help them, and I want to help them find the infinite, the divine within them. So the deeper one loves God, the more one loves every child of God. Imagine somebody comes to me and says, Rabbi YY, I love you, but I hate your children. I hate them. I hate them. I look at them and I say, sorry, you don't love me. So imagine I go to the synagogue and I scream, love God with all your heart. God, I love you. I love you. And I'm going to do everything for you. Then I leave the synagogue and I meet one of God's children. I, you, I hate. <laughs> you, get out of my life. God says, this is, this is love. This is how you love me. If you love me, you actually love every creature. Every creature is a manifestation of God's light. And every person, Rabbi Akiva says, every human being is inspiring because every person has the visage of God. And every Jewish soul is a piece of God. So people who are divinely in tune see that and they accentuate it and they celebrate it and they bring it out and they believe in people even when those people don't believe in themselves. And this is not because they're not very serious about Jewish law. It's because they're truly serious about Jewish law. It's because they're really connected to the spirituality of life. They're not living in a zone, in a petty zone of egotism. I'm religious than you. I'm less religious than you. I'm trying to impress this one. It's very genuine. And therefore, I'm not afraid to be caught with anybody. I'm not, I don't, I'm not uh, bound for my religion to look a certain way. Sometimes I realize something else completely is required. I just shared a story. We, he was a friend of mine, a friend of so many Jews, by Ronnie Greenwald. He lived here in Muncie. And, uh, and one of the people shared with me that he went to Yom Kippur to a program in a hotel, a beautiful program. Hundreds of people were there. And right before Yom Kippur started, a van pulled up with a bunch of ex-Hasidic Jews from a particular Hasidic group that were all very secular. And they came to spend Yom Kippur in the furthest location away from the Jewish community. So they spent a whole Yom Kippur drinking beer, hanging out in the lobby and in the pool. They didn't know there's going to be a program there. They really wanted to run away. And Rabbi Greenwald, instead of spending Yom Kippur in shul, like every Jew does, even secular Jews go, where did he spend Yom Kippur? He spent Yom Kippur at the pool and in the lobby, fabrenging, schmoozing with these kids. Of course, he, I'm sure he did some of the main prayers on his own when he had a chance. These were 25 youths that were struggling. They all left their homes and their communities. And that Yom Kippur, he created a space for them within Judaism. And most of them have now built families that are committed to Yiddishkeit. They have come back. He understood Yom Kippur doesn't have to look a certain way. Yom Kippur is what God wants from me. And at certain moments, this is what God wants from me. Be in the lobby. And bring, be there for these children, some of them who were molested, some of them who grew up in dysfunctional homes, some of them who were traumatized through school. Whatever it is, they're each of their challenges. You know, the Balatanya was by Kalnidre. He took off his talus 
the middle of Kol Nidre, and he went to a home at the edge of the city, Liyajna in Belarus. There was a Jewish woman who gave birth, and the, ha- the family went to Shul for Kol Nidre. Nobody wanted to miss Kol Nidre. And she was there with a newborn, and she was starving and cold. And he went and he chopped wood, and he made a fire the night of Yom Kippur, and he cooked soup, and he gave it to her. So a Jew who's really connected to God looks at Judaism in a very different way. It's not about, I'm going to prove myself. I'm going to be a zealot. I'm going to show you how religious I am. It's a heart that's beating with genuine love for every soul. And even when there's somebody who has lost their way, I ask myself, how can I be here to help this child? How can I be here to help this person? It's a very different attitude. So I say that the real, real masters of Jewish law and spirituality have much more sensitivity and non-judgmentalism in their hearts. And we should all ask ourselves that question. When you find yourself getting angry and being triggered by somebody who's different, especially a child or a nephew or a niece, ask yourself, is this coming from your real deep relationship with God and love to his children? Or is it coming because I feel embarrassed? I feel disappointed. My dream has been compromised and I'm angry at you and it's hard for me to forgive you, which is fine. It's human. But don't camouflage that as sacred, transcendent righteousness. Acknowledge that it's a human emotion that you and I have to work through. My Rosh Hashiva, Rabbi Newman from Lakewood, would would tell us that uh, the Yetzirah, he sometimes dresses up with a a pat, a frock, and he makes you think, you know. (laughs) Right. You know, you mentioned, um, you know, Ronnie Greenwald and all these children that went through, um, you know, so many um, th- that may have, for all we know, gone through such amazing, incredible tragedies. Um, and, and people really, you know, also turn to you for a lot of chizuk, inspiration, um, especially for the very downtrodden. Um, they find Rabbi Jacobson someone that could really lift them up. Uh, is there something that in your life that you know, an experience that you had or something that you wanted to um, become much more knowledgeable about that helped you become that person that so many people turn to for, for, for a brighter day? Great question. Wow. So, you know, <laughs> thank God I grew up in, uh, I'm not going to say in, in the most perfect home. Every, every one every Jewish home has its, uh, its amazing gifts and its challenges. Uh, so I certainly had those as well. But generally speaking, I grew up in a safe home, in a home where we had what we need. My parents uh, were very, very dedicated to each of the children and tried their best to give us what we need. And I'm very thankful to them and to God for that opportunity. But I think two things that I think had a very deep impact on me, I should say three things, is number one, I had the privilege of growing up at the feet of the, of the Lubavitcher Rebbe of Blessed Memory. And I watched, I watched over the years a very profound paradox. And that is, on one hand, his commitment to Judaism and to Jewish law was incredibly intense. I would watch his behavior. So in, in Hebrew, we say, He was so meticulous on the tiniest stringency of one opinion in, in, in Jewish law and Jewish halachic works which was very, very uh, awe-inspiring. And at the same time, I also saw a person who was so open 
and embracing of literally every conceivable type of individual with no judgmentalism to the point that there was nobody I saw who ever came that felt uncomfortable speaking about everything to the Rebbe. You know, usually the first time I meet you, I'm not going to tell you all of my darkest secrets and every skeleton. I mean, got to wait a few years till I can trust you. And I saw this phenomenon, teenagers, secular, religious, Jews, even non-Jews, like in the first conversation, they could talk about everything, literally everything that's going on in their life. And I wondered why. And then I realized because they knew that his opinion of them is not going to change even in the slightest. You know, we're afraid if I open up, you know, what are you going to think of me? You think I'm a real jerk <laughs> or I'm a real nerd or I'm a, or I'm a real criminal. I, you can't say everything. But what if you know that there's somebody that their relationship to you will remain absolutely intact, what we call a real, real best friend. That, for me, was a very, very inspiring paradox coming together. And then I understood that it's really the same thing. Because if you're really living with God, there's space for you. There's space in your mind for literally every soul. Just like a brain doesn't say, oh, you're too insignificant for me. You're just a nail on the, on the pinky, on the toe. <laughs> I'm not interested in you. If you're a real brain, every limb, every compartment of the body is connected, belongs to you. I think that's what real Jew- Jewish leadership is. We call them Rashi Alpha Yisrael, right? Rosh Bnei Yisrael. To be a brain, you means you're connected to everyone. You don't cut out or amputate any part. Another component was in my journeys, I spoke to many people and people would share their experiences. And I simply got firsthand intimate knowledge of what people, what people went through. And it just created in my heart a very deep sensitivity to the journeys of people, to the struggles of people. I, could, I couldn't just judge people. And, and when I saw somebody just get up and make an announcement about right and wrong, but completely clueless to the plight and journeys of people, it bothered me because I felt they meant well, but they just were not in tune to the heartbeat of the people. And the third thing is, I'm a sensitive person by nature, and my own journeys, my own reading, my own personal growth got me in contact with a lot of these types of people and a lot of this literature. And then at some point, I realized how desperate, how desperate we all are at this moment in history to be voices of compassion that will elevate and sublimate and inspire. I have learned that Jews are their own worst critics. When I criticize an 18-year-old and I tell him how bad he is, I will never describe it as well as he does it with inside his own brain. We are such intense critics of ourselves. I have still not met a Jew who doesn't criticize himself. Every Jew I know feels guilty. And when I find a Jew who doesn't feel guilty, he blames himself. (laughs) So when I see that, I realize our generation, they have a lot of criticism from inside. You know what they have to learn? They have to learn how powerful they are, how great they are, how extraordinary they are, how they should never delegitimize themselves because of the various skeletons and challenges they're dealing with. You know, okay, so you mentioned something a minute or two ago about not having any, you know, lower feelings, uh, not not changing how you, you know, feel about someone just because they opened up to you or they not to judge them based on what they shared. Um, you know, that, that reminds me. Not of, always easy. It's not always not easy. easy. Right. And, and it's so not easy. I, I was, I was we get triggered. We get triggered. But the right. key is self-awareness. 
to be curious what is happening in your brain. It's about self-awareness here, not here. Right. You're talking to me, something is out. Your child tells you something and you're going crazy. You want to explode or implode. Be curious. What just happened? What triggered mm-hmm. you? And you know what you're going to find out? The Baal Shem Tov says every person is a mirror. Right. Every person is a mirror, which means God brings you into my life to teach me about me. And when I learn about me, I'll be able to help you much better. <laughs> I think the, the, I think the Baltania says that's why the Talmud tells us that anyone who acts out in rage and gets a little upset, like, you know, tears clothing and smashes windows. It's, uh, akin to idolatry because you're taking Hashem out of the picture. You're, you're not uh, recognizing there's a message here. It's like the, you know, Hashem is sharing with you something I- that he wants to come across. <laughs> Yeah, and I, 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 would, I would just take that a step deeper and say all anger, all anger, which is, of course, a very common human emotion and experience and sensation in the body, is really a symptom of me feeling alone in the world. I lost control. Uh, my life is being shattered. I'm being threatened. All anger is really a form of, of loneliness. I'm broken. And if I would realize that I am right now the light of God in the world. I am a manifestation of Hashem's light in the world. I would see myself in a much more whole way. I wouldn't have to revert to anger. So anger is a common human emotion, but I have to recognize that it's coming from a place of inner brokenness. So get, speaking of inner in most brokenness, cases, <laughs> right, in most cases. So, so speaking of inner brokenness, uh, you know, brokenness, uh, the divorce rate is around 50% or so in the secular community. I think it, it went over 50 and then went below 50. So someone's trying to, you know, I remember someone once thought, oh, that means people are having better marriages. I said, no, I think less people are getting married because they're like, what's the point? But it, whatever it is, it might be a little lower in the Jewish observant um, homes. It might be, but it's still, there's still plenty of it. And even with the ones that are still married, um, they're saying that, maybe even less than half of them feel feel like fulfilled in their relationships. So my question to you is when we talk about things which are broken, is this a new phenomenon? And if so, what are we doing wrong? And what would you advise us to fix it? Yeah. Wow. So it's, a, it's an intense question and, you know, there's so much to say, but I think just one very important point is, you know, today emotions have become, a reality that we talk about. I once asked my 90-year-old grandmother, who was a saintly woman, uh, such a holy woman, and I would say, Baba, what are you feeling? How are you feeling? And she looked at me strangely. That's not part of the equation. Survival, doing the right thing, putting one foot ahead of another foot and marching forward towards our goal. Remember, For generations, survival occupied most of our time and most of our mental space. And if you can achieve that, you are already ahead of the game. We have the luxury today to be able to look at our emotions as a very real reality. So my emotional state in marriage has become a major part of the equation. When a woman is feeling miserable in her marriage, number one, she talks about it. She acknowledges it. She feels it. She experiences it. Number two, she also tells herself, I can do better. First of all, 
I acknowledge it. It's an experience. It's a reality. Marriage is not just about taking out the garbage, paying the bills, feeding the children, going to work, having a home, which is, of course, very important. But for thousands of years, if you had that, you were in good shape. No, marriage is also about my intimacy, my emotional state. It's acknowledging it and then saying, people are saying to themselves, I want to do better. I want to be happy. I want to have a meaningful life. I want to have an inspiring life. I want to have a beautiful relationship. I want my intimacy emotionally and spiritually and psychologically and physically to be thriving. Now, these are the facts. Some people lament and say, this is horrible. (laughs) You know, we're soldiers. We, We just have to be married and raise families. I'm not sure I can agree with that fully because I happen to think that it's the other way around. You know, we have taught that history is progressing from the Midrash says that that second verse of Genesis is about history evolving from darkness to light until the moment of Gula, of redemption. And I think part of our preparations for a global consciousness of oneness is that we have to work out our emotions. Our trauma comes to the fore not to destroy us, to give us an opportunity to work through our skeletons, our demons, our ghosts. Our marriages, I think God is telling us, I don't want you to have external marriages. I want you to have deep marriages. I want you to be able to embrace your emotions and really find peace and oneness and harmony in your emotions. So I think we are now called on in this generation to develop much deeper relationships, much more authentic much more honest, one in which we have to acknowledge how we feel about each other, how we feel about ourselves, how you trigger me, how I trigger you. What is our level of trust, our loyalty, dedication? What type of internal communication are we having with ourselves and with each other? And I think every crisis and every challenge you are experiencing in your marriage can be seen in two ways. Number one, as an invitation to drift away from each other. Number two, as an invitation to become much closer to each other. Because if we can go a little deeper and identify what is behind my anger, what is behind my loneliness, what is behind my frustration, what is behind my terrible pain that I'm having in this relationship, if with goodwill and good direction and mentorship, we use those very painful emotions as triggers to become self-aware of what I'm really looking for, our weakest link becomes our strongest link. Because when you could connect to your spouse in that space where you would have been torn apart from each other, then you have the strongest relationship because your relationship is now coming together with a glue from something that should have actually destroyed the marriage. And I think that is really a major calling and opportunity today. I know it's painful because we're seeing so much disintegration, but I really think that every crisis is also an opportunity. They say that the Chinese are alive 5,000 years because the same character they have for the word crisis, they have for the word opportunity. In Hebrew, it's much better. The same word that we have for the word mashber, for the concept of mashber, mashber means a breakdown, shvira. It's the same word that we have in Tanakh for a woman giving birth. A woman sitting on a birthing stool. Because in Judaism, a breakdown 
is really an invitation for a new birth, for, for a new renaissance, for rejuvenation, rejuvenation as in J-E-W. So I think the tremendous crises that marriages are facing as we speak today, and there's more divorce, we can either be part of the problem or we can be part of the solution. And to be part of the solution means to start helping all of us, beginning with our own children, our family, by understanding we live in a time where God is giving us the power to create fusion, fusion of self, fusion of all the paradoxes within yourself, fusion with others, fusion with the world. We call it a world of oneness, but a world of oneness only begins, a world of oneness begins through oneness within myself. So yes, we need much deeper relationships today. And for this, we have to become much more self-aware, much more honest, and much more courageous to be able to know that we have the power to confront our demons, to confront our traumas, to confront our childhood wounds, because your soul is bigger than all your traumas. Your soul is a piece of God. You could contain your pain, and your pain will bring you to greater heights and will not destroy you. And how does a person know if they are on that track? In other words, if someone wants to think to themselves, okay, my marriage, how do I grade it? You know, like when you, um, when, when it's not, something like taking a test, you got 75%, it's very easy to know how well you know it. Um, when it comes to relationships, it's much harder. And within marriage, the ups and downs are much more intense right. on both sides. So how does a person know if yeah. they are on that? I, I, th- I think every person is, of, you know, this is not something I can test exactly with a thermometer, right. thermometer of how much fever I have. It's a very subjective personal experience. But I think there's a few, you know, common things that relate to all of us. And that is, do you look forward to coming home in the evening? Do you look forward to coming home? Mm-hmm. Some of us know the answer. Some of us can't wait till I get out of the office because I can't wait to go through the door and see my wife's face or see my husband's face or see my children's face. That's the type of life. That's the type of marriages we want to cultivate. And some of us, we do it because we're fine people. We're not running away to New Zealand. We're not running to Las Vegas. We're coming home. But there is a heaviness in the heart. And I want to be able to work that through. Can you spend time with your spouse? Do you enjoy each other? Not talking about money or about the kids. That's a necessity. You got to talk about money. You got to talk about the kids. I know that. But do you enjoy talking not about money and not about the kids, talking about meaningless things? <laughs> like the beautiful, uh, I wanted to say flowers, but we have winter coming here. You know, the beautiful barren trees <laughs> that are hibernating now through the winter and preparing us for God willing, a new spring and summer. Can we really that they uh, that they talked about when they were dating? Can you still exactly. talk about them? <laughs> Most conversations during dating are about inconsequential things because that's the quality of a relationship. Because the that quality of relationship is not what you talk about; it's the fact that you're talking. It's the fact that we enjoy each other. You know, can you laugh together? Can you cry together? Can you really be a support for each other? And again, doesn't mean we agree about everything, but it means that there's a trust here that I feel supported and embraced by you. I feel supported and embraced by you. And you feel supported and embraced by me. I'm not living in a lonely world. I'm living in a world of camaraderie. This is a feeling that creates a beautiful vibe in a home that the children also benefit from so much. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, And my last question, we all know the song Animamen. 
we, we, we sing it. We sometimes cry with it. And regardless of whether we could make ourselves cry, we definitely pay plenty of lip service to the concept of Mashiach, the Geula. Uh, but honestly, truth be told, we live, we're, we're pretty comfortable, at least, you know, materialistically, not many of us, if, if any of us know what it means, what poverty means. I mean, today our problems are like, I just got a hundred thousand chase Sapphire points. How many nights can I get at the Waldorf with a hundred thousand points? And these are our struggles today. Um, at the same time, we say, we try to, we, we yearn Mashiach. Practically speaking, how can we truly yearn for the Geula, for the redemption, and make the necessary change, which can bring us all back to Eretz Yisrael? Wow. I would like to focus on, on this is a, obviously a, a big topic, a big topic, maybe one of the biggest Jewish topics or the biggest Jewish topic, because Maimonides puts this and was one of the 13 principles of faith. But I think one very important point is Geula Mashiach has two sides to it. There's what we call the heavenly redemption and what we call the earthly redemption. Or to quote one of the great Hasidic works, Moire Nayim, that was authored by Reb Nachem of Chernobyl. He was a student of the Baal Shem Tov, and he says, there is the Mashiach, the person that Jews believe is going to come and usher in the era of redemption, a skiing of, 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 of David HaMelech, of King David and King Solomon from the tribe of Judah. The Rambam describes his qualities at the end of the laws of kings. But then he says something powerful. He says there's the spark of Mashiach in every single Jew. There is the Redeemer inside of me and inside of you. Or as the Talmud says in Shabbos 119, Every child is considered a little Mashiach, which means anointed by God. The Geula that God brings, which means when God says redemption is here and the era is ushered in, and in our prophecies, every Jew comes back to the Holy Land and a third base Hamikdash is built, etc., that only Hashem knows when it's going to happen and exactly how it's going to happen. This is not something that any human being knows. We wait for it. We pray for it. We ask for it. <laughs> I grew up with the song, we want Mashiach now. We don't want to wait. We say every day, we wait for your salvation every day. The Briskerov famously said, it doesn't mean, I await every day that he's going to come one day. I await that he's going to come this day. I wait, I hope, I await. But ultimately, God decides when that ghoul is going to come. There's something that I think does relate to every one of us. And in that sense, we are not people who wait. We are active participants and actually partners in ushering in that era. And that is the consciousness of Mashiach the consciousness of Geula, finding the spark of Mashiach inside of me. Now, what does that mean? What that really means is, at least on one basic level is, yes, we're comfortable, certainly much more comfortable than our grandparents, our great-grandparents. We have luxuries and prosperity that they didn't even dream of, despite all of our setbacks and tragedies that we have and challenges that everyone has. And some people have very serious challenges in terms of loss and grief and mental health and physical health, no question about it. But if you look at the Jewish people in general, there's a prosperity today that previous generations didn't even dream of. 
But we are all yearning, every single one of us, at least every person I speak to, we're all yearning for true internal happiness, for true internal wholeness. And it's fascinating that in this generation where there's so much prosperity, there's also crazy anxiety. Nobody knows why. <laughs> Nobody knows why. Where's the anxiety? Why are people anxious? Why is there so much anxiety in the world? People had it so much worse, and we don't find so much anxiety. I'm sure they had a lot of stuff going on. Today, it's a very powerful, very powerful question. What is going on? And I think one of the real answers is, it's really our yearning for Mashiach. It's really our yearning. Anxiety is telling me something is wrong. What's wrong? What's wrong is that Mashiach is not here. What's wrong is, you see, I'm elevating all of our anxiety to a yearning for Geula. I know some people think will think I'm completely crazy. You're anxious about your job, and you're anxious about your mother-in-law, and you're anxious about your kids, and you're anxious about the bank, and you're anxious about your back pain. I got it. <laughs> and I want to say that underlying all that anxiety, because back pain always existed. <laughs> you could speak to Dr. Sarna about back yes, pain. Yes, <laughs> that's, that's on the, well, he's no longer alive, but we do have someone who's going to talk about the correlation. Right. But continue, yeah. go ahead. Underlying all of that is, this is a generation we're looking for real wholeness, for real oneness. Because what is Geula? Geula, as the Medrash says, is the same word like Goyla. Goyla is exile. Geula is the same exact letters that make up the word exile, which is very strange. Exile and redemption are opposites. There's one difference. Geula is Aleph. There's an Aleph in the Geula. When you bring the Aleph, Aleph means one, the oneness, into the exile, exile becomes redemption. Redemption is not escaping exile. Redemption is revealing the oneness in exile. And that what, what that means in my life is that ability to be able to operate on a level of consciousness that identifies myself as completely one with God. There is complete oneness. Who am I? My soul, my body, my psyche, my brain is a manifestation of God's light in the world. Now, that's not so easy because I have so many triggers and so many messages that tell me I'm alienated, I'm depressed, I'm anxious, I'm a bad Jew, I'm unsuccessful, who do I think I am? I'm a shmata, I'm a victim, and I have proofs for all of this. What does it mean to reveal the spark of Mashiach in me? To say, no, those voices are part of my journey to self-awareness, but my ultimate self-awareness is to realize that myself is a manifestation of God in this world, and that I am a Mashiach, I am a redeemer, meaning I am an ambassador of God in this world at every moment, an ambassador of love, light, hope, wisdom, authenticity, healing, redemption. We're living in a generation where what we're finding is a yearning in people for ultimate truth, for ultimate unity, for ultimate wholeness, for real intimacy with Hashem that was unprecedented. And we always look at ourselves, we're the lowest generation. In many ways, we're the lowest generation. In many ways, we're the highest generation. Because a generation that ushers in Geula ultimately completes all of history. So what's happening right now is, you say, people are so comfortable, why should we want Mashiach? I think the desire for Mashiach is embedded in the DNA of a Jew. You don't have to create it. It's a desire for truth. And when we don't have it, we're anxious. And oh, Excuse me. All of our anxiety today, in my mind, is really an inner yearning, an inner aspiration of tzamalacham afshi, kamalacham sari, be'eretz tziyav ayav blimayim. 
I'm looking for real redemption. And I think when each of us believes in your power to be your own inner Mashiach and to bring that to other people, we create a lifestyle that's pervaded with the consciousness of redemption. I was taking a walk with my wife the other day. We were walking down the street and I saw somebody playing in a garden and I said, hi, how are you? So my wife says, you know this person? I said, no. She said, so why are you saying hi? Because in New York, you don't just say hi to anybody. We're New Yorkers. I'm a New Yorker. Well, you do, but yeah. <laughs> I, know, I know in your neck of the woods, it may be different. <laughs> so I tell my wife, listen, we hope soon Mashiach is coming. When the ghoul is going to be here, it's going to be revealed that we're all one. Everything is going to be one. The world is going to be filled with divine oneness. So when Mashiach comes, am I going to say hi to his people, to everybody, to strangers? Yeah, they won't be strangers anymore. They say, I want to start living like that today already. We all have the opportunity to live in a consciousness of Gula, in a consciousness of oneness, in our own brains, in our relationships with people. And you'll be shocked when you live this way. People feel it, and they're so inspired because they're all yearning for it. And as the Moira Naim says, when each of us ignites the spark of Mashiach inside our own heart, so the convergence of all these sparks creates a flame which helps bring the ultimate Mashiach into the world and transforms the consciousness of the world into a consciousness of oneness. And I just want to say, don't see it as so abstract. One fellow sneezed in Wuhan, China. That's all he did. He bought a rat for his family. They ate some, not a rat, a bat. They ate some bats for dinner. And afterwards, he sneezed, right? And and the particles that came out of his mouth, the air particles, touched the doorknob, fell on the doorknob, which somebody then touched. And a few months later, the whole world was changed from one sneeze. So now you see how a consciousness and a world can be transformed from one little human being living in China. So when Maimonides, when Rambam writes in the laws of repentance, based on a Gemara in Kedushin 49, that you should see the whole world and your whole life as a balanced scale. And a mitzvah tips, a mitzvah, a positive thought, word or action can tips the scale and save the world. It's not an exaggeration. I always say the first world war in 1914, the first world war, which was the greatest war, they used to call it the great war, the greatest war in history was triggered from a 19-year-old guy, Gabrilo Princip, who pulled a trigger in Sarajevo in the spring of 1914. And the Second World War was a result of the First World War. So all of history was changed. We don't have to describe our history for us Jews, what the Second World War did for Jewish history and the First World War as well. It happened from one human being. If it's true in the negative... How much true is it in the positive? That one person has an incredible, incredible impact to bring a new consciousness into the world. Wow. Uh, you, you reminded me of, uh, I heard from Rav David Cohn in Brooklyn, the shot of, um, you say, what, if a person says something in the name of someone else, he brings Geula to the world. Where do we bring that from? Tomer Esther, Shem Mordechai. The Esther said it, said it in the name of Mordechai. What that tells us is, is that Geula is really about going back to the source. It's really within you. It's not some far away, it's not some far away thing. It's really, it's, it's our essence. It's our source. That's beautiful. There's a beautiful Hasidic teaching. 
Kala Aimer Davar B'Shem Aimrai. The word Davar means a thing. B'Shem Aimrai means the one who said it. Everything in the world is created through God's speech. Baruch Sha'amar V'Hoya Ha'Olam. Bidvar Hashem V'Yomer Elikim Basarim Amar. God's speech, God's energy creates everything. So Kala Aimer Davar B'Shem Aimrai. Whenever you identify within everything, Shem Oimroi, the one who said it, when you see the true core of everything as godly energy, maybe Gu'ula la'olam, you redeem the world from Helam. Oilam comes, the Gemara says in Psachim that Oilam comes from the word Helam, which means concealment. Right. You emancipate the world from its concealment, from its outer layers, because you identify the divine energy in it. Wow. <laughs> what a Isn't way to A beautiful close. interpretation. Wow. Beautiful. Yeah. That un- unbelievable. <laughs> See, that's, that's the mission statement of Gula. To be able to identify within every single particle, every atom, every cell, every neuron, the shame Oimrei, the Elikus, the oneness, the divinity. Baruch Sha'amar Vahayahayla. Wow. No, that's, that's, uh, that's, that's, uh, Un- unreal. That's a, that's a beautiful, be- what a way to close. Also, um, Rabbi Jacobs, and I feel we could probably go on for hours until the next story. We, uh, hopefully your students and some people in Columbus will come to us and say, this man of Kriyashma came. We got to, you know, we got to get to Davin, but this was awesome. And we didn't even get to, I still have in my notes. Uh, we didn't talk about your relationship with Ellie Wiesel, um, just a couple hundred miles away from here. Mendy Klein is the of Racha and, David and and Ida Schattenstein, who we'll be featuring on 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 an episode as well. We didn't we didn't get to any of this, but I guess we're going to have to do this again. That's okay. all I can say. We always have Pesach Sheni by Jews. We always have a second <laughs> Passover, right? Lamanigara, <laughs> that's right. We're going to have to do this again. Thank you. Thank I really, I, I consider you and and the Shiva Danet is like. And, and Torah anytime, um, which also plays a lot of um, your shiurim, like a, like almost like a rebbe of mine. I, I joked to Shimon Kol Yaakov, who I saw um, recently at the Goda convention. I joked to him that you guys and Rabbi Jacobson should really get a cut of my salary because I really get so much material from you. I could just, t- I, I really, you know, I could go on forever. But my, I remember the first shir I heard from you was um, Achashverosh knew how to throw a party. And where you talked about um, the last action, the first thought, why Rashi didn't go with the simple explanation of um, that he was a rush from beginning to end. Um, because Achashverish, who Achashverish? Right. That's right. I still remember that. So it was five years ago. Again, shout out to Mayor Perlmutter for introducing me to you. Um, thank you again. This should be, um, this is going to be listened to and viewed by who knows how many Jews and should give a source of chizuk inspiration um, to everyone. And it should be as a chus for you, your community, your family. Amen. And uh, we should only have Amen. good things. And let's uh, wish each other only simchas, nachas, mazel, and bracha to Amen. us and to entire Klai Yisrael. Thank you, Reb Hillel, for such a special opportunity and for your uh, uh, stimulating <laughs> and challenging questions. That always bring out, you know, the good juices in all of us. So thank you really for the opportunity. And may each and every one of us realize, you know, today our our power, our potential, because it's really, it's it's unprecedented. It's incredible. As much as we like to sigh about all of our problems, today there are opportunities that were unprecedented in terms of individuals making 
a difference. And, and every day when you wake up, you know, ask yourself today, am I going to be part of the problems that face the Jewish world? Or am I going to be part of the solutions that will uplift the Jewish world? And then the choice is yours and the choice is mine. So thank you. Thank you. I mean, wow. That was a lot. So much to unpack right there. So much to take home. So much to take with us. Uh, They don't call him Rabbi YY for nothing. If I had to, you know, maybe just highlight one thing that he said that he learned from his father that one could disagree, but not be disagreeable. And I have to, I, I must add my own little, you know, addition on that. And forgive me if, uh, if you don't, you don't agree, that's okay. But I do feel it's appropriate to mention the political climate outside. It's just so toxic. If someone's on the, on a different side than you are on whatever issue it is we think of sometimes the most the most negative names and and associations for them and really perhaps it's just a different opinion and when we hear people that were able to have a magazine a publication where they had so many different opinions and voices and things that they disagreed with but they weren't disagreeable. They allowed them to be present and, you know, whoever follows could follow, you know, whoever doesn't, doesn't, but they have the right to exist. I thought that was incredible. That's, that's, that is really, you know, something for us to take with us. And, you know, the idea of Mishnah, Beishilo, Beishamai, who says which opinion first is the other opinion who I'm arguing on, but I want to be, honoring him and say his opinion first. So many incredible lessons from Rabbi YY. Wow. That, that is maybe one of the best, but we are very, very privileged that we featured him here, right here exclusively on Colot. Make sure to tune in to the next episodes. We have some great guests that we mentioned earlier. Uh, we got some more guests that are coming. It's like almost confirmed or unofficially, officially confirmed, but we'll be announcing them soon and you're not going to want to miss them. Make sure to share with your friends. Rabbi Kappenstein signing off here from Kolot. Looking forward to seeing you all soon. To listen to all Kolot episodes and see upcoming guests, visit kolopodcast.com. We are also on all podcast players. Type in Kolot on iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, Podbean, and Amazon. Share with your friends and please make sure to give us a five-star review. Kolot is a project of the Columbus Community Kolel, a full-time Jewish learning center in Bexley, staffed with high-caliber Torah scholars. Ever since 1995, boys, girls, men and women from all backgrounds and affiliations have found many opportunities to connect with Torah and mitzvahs at the Kolel. Whether it's a study partner, engaging lesson, or a program, the Kolel is your one-stop shop for all your Jewish learning. If you want to know how you can benefit from the Kolel, visit thekolel.org. That is T-H-E-K-O-L-L-E-L dot org and forever be inspired.